Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Tales to Terrify just found out that we've been nominated for Fiction Podcast of the Year at This Is Horror. Link will be in the show notes for you to vote. We found out a bit late, but you'll have a few days to cast your vote after this episode airs. We have some stiff competition from the likes of Nightmare Magazine Podcast, The Other Stories by Hawk and Cleaver, and our old friends at both Pseudopod and the No Sleep Podcast. Best of luck to everyone. I've been thinking about far-fetched fables this week. As I had told you, they have gone on hiatus. That's their official status, although some of the more pessimistic of us would say that they are departed. Perhaps those folks are correct. I, I should hope not. But other sisters have come up in the District of Wonders and passed on. Protecting Project Pulp, for example, and my most mourned, Crime City Central. The things that, I think, have lent to our continued existence are these. First, structure. Tales of Terrify has four people on staff. By distributing our work around, no one gets overworked and we can help each other when real life comes knocking. Secondly, I have strongly emphasized my desire for redundancy. I have operated in a way that expects that I will not be with the show forever, ideally, when it's time to leave the show, it'll be by choice instead of surprise, but I'll prepare for either way. You'll also recall the recent episodes in which we had guest hosts from our editors. But the third item is you. I have mentioned specifically those who support us financially through Patreon, and you generous souls do need to be mentioned first. However, we have a rather sizable listening audience. Those of you who have shared a particularly enjoyable episode with others have grown our show as well. Sharing tales to terrify's existence with others is an important part of maintaining us. Our advertising network finds it easier to sell to advertisers when Tales to Terrify's horde of listeners is large. But enough about my thoughts on why Tales to Terrify continues to insist on its continued existence. I wanted to talk about fantasy a bit. I've read a good amount of fantasy in my life, although I'll admit it hasn't been my go-to genre for a few years. If I remember right, I had read The Goblin Emperor a year or two back and very much enjoyed it. And I also read Dune, which I feel is more of a fantasy book than sci-fi. I've read countless Terry Pratchett books, and I hope you have too. I still have fond memories of reading the Dragonlance books in my middle school library. 
Ursula K. Le Guin's recent passing made national news. It is an important genre. I believe a good fantasy story should speak to adversity, courage, and triumph, a hopeful tone. Sometimes we really do want to hear the story where the brave knight rides off through strange countries to defeat the dragon. But fantasy's weird sister, Horror, tells the story of the knight who rode off to brave the dragon but found himself lost, destitute, starving, huddled in a cave, dying while being tormented by the demons of his own failure. We tell the stories of those who didn't make it, and today that's the story of far-fetched fables. We hope you'll rise from that cold grave and return to us one day. But until then, let's hear a couple of scary stories. Our first one will be a short classic from Randall Garrett. Randall Garrett, born December 16, 1927, was a prolific American science fiction and fantasy author best known for his books featuring the character Lord Darcy. He was a frequent contributor to Astounding and other science fiction magazines of the 1950s and 1960s. He instructed Robert Silverberg in the techniques of selling large quantities of action-adventure science fiction and collaborated with him on two novels about Earth bringing civilization to an alien planet. Garrett suffered an attack of encephalitis in the summer of 1979 and spent the last eight years of his life in a coma. He died on December 31, 1987. Listen with me to Randall Garrett's Time Fuse. Commander Benedict kept his eyes on the rear plate as he activated the intercom. All right, cut the power. We ought to be safe enough here. As he released the intercom, Dr. Liker of the astronomical staff, stepped up to his side. Perfectly safe, he nodded. Although even at this distance, a star-going nova ought to be quite a display. Benedict didn't shift his gaze from the plate. Do you have your instruments set up? Not quite, but we have plenty of time. The light won't reach us for several hours yet. Remember, we were out racing it at ten lights. The commander finally turned, slowly letting his breath out in a soft sigh. Dr. Liker, I would say that this is just about the foulest coincidence that could happen to the first interstellar vessel ever to leave the solar system. Liker shrugged. In one way of thinking, yes. It is certainly true that we will never know now whether Alpha Centauri A ever had any planets. But, in another way, it is extremely fortunate that we should be so near a stellar explosion because of the wealth of scientific information we can obtain. As you say, it is a coincidence, and probably one that happens only in a billion years. The chances of any particular star going over are small. That we should be so close when it happens is of a vanishingly small order of probability. Commander Benedict took off his cap and looked at the damp stain in the sweatband. Nevertheless, Doctor, it is damned unnerving to come out of ultra-drive a couple of hundred million miles from the first star ever visited by man and have to turn tail and run because the damn thing practically blows up in your face. Liker could see that Benedict was upset. He rarely used the same profanity twice in one sentence. They had been downright lucky at that. If Liker hadn't seen the star begin to swell and brighten, if he hadn't known what it meant, or if Commander Benedict hadn't been quick enough in shifting the ship back into ultra-drive, Liker had a vision of an incandescent cloud of gaseous metal that had once been a spaceship. The intercom buzzed. The commander answered, Yes? Sir, would you tell Dr. Liker that we have everything set up now? Liker nodded and turned to leave. I guess we have nothing to do now but wait. When the light from the Nova did come, Commander Benedict was back at the plate again, a forward one this time, since the ship had been turned around in order to align the astronomy lab in the nose with the star. Alpha Centauri A began to brighten and spread. It made Benedict think of a light bulb connected through a rheostat, with someone turning that rheostat, turning it until the circuit was well overloaded. The light began to hurt Benedict's eyes, even at that distance, and he had to cut down the receptivity in order to watch. After a while, he turned away from the plate. Not because the show was over, but simply because it had slowed to a point beyond which no change seemed to take place to the human eye. 
Five weeks later, much to Liker's chagrin, Commander Benedict announced that they had to leave the vicinity. The ship had only been provisioned to go to Alpha Centauri, scout the system without landing on any of the planets, and return. At ten lights, top speed for the ultra drive, it would take better than three months to get back. I know you'd like to watch it go through the complete cycle, Benedict said, but we can't go back home as a bunch of starved skeletons. Liker resigned himself to the necessity of leaving much of his work unfinished, and although he knew it was a case of sour grapes, consoled himself with the thought that he could at least get most of the remaining information from the 500-inch telescope on Luna four years from then. As the ship slipped into the not-quite space through which the ultra-jive propelled it, Lacker began to consolidate the material he had already gathered. Commander Benedict wrote in the log, 54 days out from Seoul, Alpha Centauri has long since faded back into its pre-blow-up state. Since we have far outdistanced the light from its explosion, it now looks as it did two years ago. It... Pardon me, Commander, Liker interrupted, but I have something interesting to show you. Benedict took his fingers off the keys and turned around in his chair. What is it, Doctor? Liker frowned at the papers in his hands. I've been doing some work on the probability of that explosion happening just as it did, and I've come up with some rather frightening figures. As I said before, the probability was small. A little calculation has given us some information which makes it even smaller. For instance, with a possible error of plus or minus two seconds, Alpha Centauri A began to explode the instant we came out of ultra-drive. Now, the probability of that occurring comes out so small that it should happen only once in 10 to the 467 seconds. It was Commander Benedict's turn to frown. So, Commander, the entire universe is only about 10 to the 17 seconds old. But to give you an idea, let's say that the chances of this happening are once in millions of trillions of years. Benedict blinked. The number, he realized, was totally beyond his comprehension, or anyone else's. Well, so what? Now it has happened that one time. That simply means that it will almost certainly never happen again. True, but, Amanda, when you buck odds like that and win, the thing to do is look for some factor that is cheating in your favor. If you took a pair of dice and started throwing sevens, one right after the other, for the next couple of thousand years, you'd begin to suspect they were loaded. Benedict said nothing. He just waited expectantly. There's only one thing that could have done it. A ship. Liker said it quietly, without emphasis. What we know about the hyperspace or superspace or whatever it is we move through in ultra-drive is almost nothing. Coming out of it so near to a star might set up some sort of shock wave in normal space which would completely disrupt that star's internal balance, resulting in the liberation of an unimaginably vast amount of energy causing that star to go nova. We can only assume that we ourselves were the fuse that set off the nova. Benedict stood up slowly. When he spoke, his voice was a choking whisper. I mean, sun, soul, might. Liker nodded. I don't say that it definitely would, but the probability is that we were the cause of the destruction of Alpha Centauri A, and therefore might cause the destruction of Sol in the same way. Benedict's voice was steady again. That means we can't go back again, doesn't it? Even if we're not positive, we can't take the chance. Not necessarily. We can get fairly close before we cut out the drive and come in the rest of the way at sublight speed. It'll take longer, and we have to go on half or one-third rations. But we can do it. How far away? I don't know what the minimum distance is, but I do know we can gauge a distance. Remember, neither Alpha Centauri B nor C were detonated. We'll have to cut our drive at least as far away from Sol as they are from Alpha. I see. The commander was silent for a moment, then... Very well, Dr. Liker. If that's the safest way, that's the only way. Benedict issued the orders.
while Lycure figured out the exact point at which they must cut out the drive and how long the trip would take. The rations would have to be cut down accordingly. Commander Benedict's mind whirled around the monstrousness of the whole thing like some dizzy bee around a flower. What if there had been planets around Centauri A? What if they had been inhabited? Had he, all unwittingly, killed entire races of living, intelligent beings? But how could he have known? The drive had never been tested before. It couldn't be tested inside the solar system. It was too fast. He and his crew had been volunteers, knowing that they might die when the drive went on. Suddenly, Benedict gasped and slammed his fist down on the desk before him. Liker looked up. What's the matter, Commander? Suppose, came the answer. Just suppose that we have the same effect on a star when we go into Ultra Drive as we do when we come out of it. Liker was silent for a moment, stunned by the possibility. There was nothing to say anyway. They could only wait. A little more than half a light year from Seoul, when the ship reached the point where its occupants could see the light that had left their home sun more than seven months before, they watched it become suddenly horribly brighter. A hundred thousand times brighter. That was Randall Garrett's Time Fuses, read by Stephen Thomas Howell. Stephen Thomas Howell is a retired U.S. Army officer living in Valrico, Florida, with his wife, two sons, and one hyperactive dog. He's a fiction writer, a runner, a road biker, and an out-of-practice musician. Thank you, Stephen. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story for the night comes to us from Angela Slatter. Angela Slatter is the author of the novels Vigil and Corpse Light, as well as eight short story collections. Angela has won a World Fantasy Award, a British Fantasy Award, one Ditmar Award, and six Aurorealis Awards. She's been a Queensland's Writers' Fellow and the established writer-in-residence at the Catherine Susanna Pritchard Writers' Center. She has an MA and a PhD in creative writing. Her work has been translated into Bulgarian, Chinese, Russian, Spanish, Japanese, French, Polish, and Romanian. The film rights to her novelette Finnegan's Field have been optioned by Victoria Madden, The Kettering Incident. The character of Kit Caswell first appeared in the novella Ripper. This story I think you'll find well-suited for the week of Valentine's Day. Lend me your ears for Angela Slatter's The Heart is a Mirror for Sinners, originally published in Murder Ballads, March 2017. 
The crypt of St. Bride's is cold, colder than the air outside, and I welcome it, find it invigorating, for I did not sleep well, nor have I done since my return. Flory, long gone, chose last night to haunt my dreams. Her face and figure, not as I saw them that final occasion, were perfect and pink and plump and whole. We spoke of old times, all the childish play we'd shared, hide-and-seek in the empty rooms and dusty attics of Norwood Hall, the tarts and pies and treats we'd stolen and eaten beneath the great oak in Matilda's wood, not far from the churchyard. We chatted as friends, but when, moved and ecstatic, I reached out to touch her hand, she changed, her beauty gone and ripped, and she appeared to me the way I'd left her. I'd woken with a start to find my room flooded with daylight and Flory herself pulling back the blue velvet drapes around my bed. I screamed, I admit it, and scrambled away from what I thought to be a phantasm only to blink and to realize it was the little maid, poor Mary, shaking with fright. I brought you your breakfast, sir. I'm sorry. I heard you speaking and thought you were awake already. Otherwise, I'd never have... I waved a hand. Not to worry. I dreamed is all. A nightmare. I sat up propped myself against the pillows, and shooed her when she tried to help me. The thought of her touch instilled as much strange dread as intense arousal, and the dark voice in my mind threatened to sing. Go, leave me. I escaped the house not long after, tramped across the fields, and came here to visit my parents. Only the smallest amount of light filters down, but my eyes adjust quickly. I run my hands over the marble curves, dips and hollows, apexes and nadirs of my progenitor's effigies and those of other forebears, some bearing medieval armor, others not quite so ancient. All in all, an attitude of pious prayer. I feel calmer but I cannot shake thoughts of Flory. Flory James, the housekeeper's daughter. No more than a few years older than I. A beauty fully formed and the object of my affections. My heart was hers, and hers should have been mine. But then, oh, Flory, so many years since my leaving, Yet you're never entirely forgotten. And thoughts, oh, insistent thoughts, of Mary, the little maid, who looks now so like Flory did then. So alike that when I arrived at the hall two weeks ago and Mrs. James made the introductions, I was certain my heart would fail me. So alike that I pondered her parentage. Mrs. James had shared father's bed far more than mother ever had. Was it possible Flory and Mary were sisters? Now, as I stare into the corners of the tomb, ideas darting to and fro, the stale air smells strangely intense, earthy. In the darkness the motes and gillings seem to swirl and coalesce. Disperse, then gather back together, as if trying to form a shape. A sound drops into the silence, sharp and sudden, which I'd first think is stone scraping on stone. The wheeling particles shiver and disappear, with nothing left in their place. I catch my breath and turn, slowly, seeking the source of the noise. Hello? A male voice, soft, almost feminine, 
the scrape of stone again, and I realize it's mingled with the slap of shoe leather, small rocks caught in the tread of the soles. I look at the steps that, smoothed by years of use, and tilted by an earth that shifts to its own rhythms and desires, lead up into the church proper. A pair of scuffed boots can be seen, then more as their owner shuffles his way down. The vicar, dressed in fusty black trousers and frock coat, waistcoat over a white shirt with one of those new-fangled dog collars, makes himself known. Some of my acquaintances would call him a crow, but he seems to me more like a shadow given form. I swallow my own sigh of relief. I have become fanciful with exhaustion, with returning home, with my strange dreams, with the injury, and move into the light at the bottom of the staircase. The thin man startles, gasps, and I smile. To soften the blow, I am quick to introduce myself. Good day, vicar. I am Archie Norwood. He relaxes a little, but looks no less put out, wondering, no doubt, how I got in. I dangle father's heavy keychain. My family have always had access. We endowed the original church, you know, and keep God's representatives in their living. He chooses not to comment though I sense he'd argue if he felt on more secure ground, if I were a known quantity. Instead, he says, Mrs. James said you were coming to Norwood. I notice he does not say, Home. Indeed, I came to pay my respects. It took an age before the solicitor's letter found me. By the time it was in my hand, the wax seal cracked and the corner of the missive torn in haste. My parents had been dead for nigh on five months. No goodbyes, no reproaches, no chance of deathbed reconciliations, acts of contrition or forgiveness, or other such events for which many folk long. I suffer no illusions. And mother welcomed father's conjugal attention more often. Had another legitimate child appeared, I'd never have been recalled. How long have you been drawing wages from Norwood, vicar? Two years in October, he says. That's a fine start for a man in his first position. Two years is a good length to stay in any one spot, I say for he's rather young, and I doubt he's had a place anywhere else. The barb hits home, and I delight to see him blanch at the implied threat. That's right, you snipe. Remember which side of the bread your butter's on. Keep the master happy. I stand beside him, eye to eye, to see if he will challenge. He merely drops his gaze, and we ascend to the nave, and walk slowly along the aisle, neither hurrying lest it show weakness, an urge to flee. I say, I saw the foxfire. He stiffens, his nose twitches, and I see sweat break out on his top lip, though it is by no means hot. Whatever do you mean? The corpse lights. On top of the graves. I saw them as we drove past the night of my arrival. And I had, thinking there were considerably more than I remembered from my childhood. He shakes his head. I step out into the sunshine, and as soon as I've crossed the threshold, he closes the door behind me, and I hear the snap of a latch being shot over a muffled. You must be mistaken. I wonder how he can possibly say that, a man in his position. But perhaps he's never seen the wisp of soul escape from the body as a person dies. Too busy reading from his prayer book, eyes pinned to the page, hoping it's the key to a promised heaven. 
not watching the dreadfulness of the corpse releasing its grip on life. I move off the stoop, off the path, and pick my way through the headstones. Some new, most old and weathered and leaning to one side where the ground has subsided. I weave towards the north wall, which is waist-high. Though Flory is buried in here, I do not seek her grave, nor do I examine the dying yew tree. I look to Matilda's wood, which separates St. Bride's from the rolling grounds of Norwood Hall. In there, somewhere, beneath the spreading boughs, under thick green grass and dense undergrowth, in there is the ancient god oak, and at its roots, my plantings. The landscape before me is at once foreign and familiar. Almost twenty years have passed since I laid eyes on this particular arrangement of wood and rill, hill and dale. Since I was exiled, Yet here I stand. It is the moment, wrote the solicitor, who is ignorant of the reasons for my youthful departure, to return home and take up your position and your responsibilities to the hall and village. It is the chance, Archibald, to be the man your father wished you to be. A rather rich comment from someone who'd never met me. And yet I did his bid, partially from curiosity, partially from the boredom that inevitably comes of wintering in Toronto, and partially from a strange yearning, a pull towards the place that, no matter how long I'd been gone, was always home. I took passage on a steamship, spent the seemingly interminable days at sea, thinking back on all the hearts I'd left behind. I think upon them again, and unconsciously make a fist of my left hand, feel the bandages tighten, the skin split and break beneath. I grit my teeth. I belong here, I tell myself. I'll not be chased by womanish fears or fancies. This earth is mine, as are all in it. Where will you go, do you think, Mrs. James? I ask when the housekeeper delivers my luncheon tray. I've passed most of the day in father's study, working through his papers and familiarizing myself with the running of the estate. The rents that might be expected from tenants, the details of the vicar's living, father's investments in the East India Company, among others. How many staff maintain the hall and the like? Whatever do you mean, Master Archie? Her mouth thins into a straight line, though I can see a tremor in the hands she's folded neatly in front of her black dress. When you retire, of course... You're getting close, surely, I say smoothly, watching her only from the corner of my eye. She pales and swallows, and I continue. I can arrange for a cottage in the village. Father would want you taken care of. I've lived in this house since I was sixteen. Her voice trembles. I've lived here longer than you ever did. Ah, but I own Norwood Hall, Mrs. James, and you do not. I smile at her. No one should hold on too long. She draws herself up proudly. She's still beautiful, and I imagine she held my father's eye right until he died. Longer than my mother did, certainly. It strikes me that she is a portrait of how Flory might have looked had she been given the chance to age. I shall consider your offer, Master Archie, Mrs. James says with dignity. Mrs. James, yes? Mary. What of her? Is she your daughter? Yes. Is she my father's daughter? She does not answer, but her movements as she leaves the room are jerky 
as if a charge of electricity is playing havoc with her limbs. My sense of satisfaction is something I recognize as petty, but it gives me no less pleasure. Oh, I'll not get rid of her quite yet. It would be like removing a cog from a fine timepiece when you've no replacement. But arrangements will be made. If I am honest, her presence has become more and more oppressive. She dogs my steps, hiding her interference under the guise of offered help. Every time my eyes find the delicate figure of Mary, little Mary, sweet Mary, invariably Mrs. James arrives to bustle the girl to another task elsewhere. And there is the itch, the scratch of something that may be guilt though I've always felt myself immune to it. When Mrs. James is gone, my mind will settle, and Mary, sweet Mary, will be alone. I sit at the window of the bedchamber that once belonged to my father, staring out beyond the glass at a nightland which seems to reshape and shift as I watch, as if I'm on a moving train. Far off I can see the flicker of lights, dancing hither and yon beyond the trees in Matilda's wood. Lovers? Poachers? The foxfire from St. Bride's gone a-wandering? Something else? I have not yet walked there myself, but not through fear. It simply has not felt right to do so. I always entered the wood with intent. I'll not break that habit now, simply for the sake of old times. I run the fingers of my right hand over the back of the left. Liberal amounts of salve are applied to the burns morning and evening when fresh bandages are wrapped. Not many nights after my arrival, drunk on too much brandy in triumph, I fell asleep by the fireplace in the parlor. I dreamt the dreams of another man, a man different from myself, who'd had children and hopes, a son and heir, a daughter he could not acknowledge, a man who'd lost both and found his life hollowed. When I was woken by pain and the stench of burnt flesh, it was to discover that in slumber my left arm had fallen from the armrest and the snifter with it. Alcohol splashed on the carpet and into the fire, and enough of a trail was laid down that the flames leapt surely from hearth to hand. The doctor says I will be scarred, but should have use of the limb for the most part. He had given me laudanum, but even the opiate cannot quiet my nightly struggles with chimeras and reminiscences. I consider retreating to my own bedroom, my old room, where no memories but my own linger. No, this house is mine, all of it. The earth is mine, as are all in it. I watch the lights until they dim and disappear, as if they've grown bored. My lids are heavy, and it will not matter whether I fall asleep in this chair or my bed. The dreams will come, whether I will them or not. A flurry when I thought she was mine, when I believed she was safe with me, no matter what else I may have done. A flurry as I left her, and of others, too, but I cannot recall their faces, for they were not as important. And of Mary, sweet Mary, who smiles at me and blushes when I greet her. Mary, who wears Flory's face. I remind myself that there is nothing to fear, that I am but a victim of weariness and recollection grown malignant in the darkness. I remind myself that I was drunk the night of my injury, exhausted by travel and delirious with pain. I remind myself of all this, and yet I cannot shake the feeling that I heard something else that distant evening. A sound above my own screams, above the panicked response of the servants. 
the noise of the parlor door being pulled shut on a chorus of girlish giggles and sniggers. The days passed like seasons, seemingly endless, then suddenly gone as if without warning. I spend the sunlit hours being lord of the manor, learning my craft, learning the people around me, the staff and the villagers. I spend the sunlit hours walking the fields and checking boundaries against old maps to ensure my rights are not infringed, speaking with gamekeepers about poachers and colliers about charcoal production. I spend the sunlit hours trying to distract and exhaust myself in the hope of untroubled slumber. My hand has not healed, at least not properly. Gripping cutlery and drinking vessels is painful, as is dressing myself and most other activities that require manual dexterity. It is not getting worse, the doctor tells me, but not better. Some nights I think I would rather chop it off than tolerate this insistent pain any longer. I take the laudanum, which dulls the ache, but lowers my control, my inhibitions. It lets the dark voice inside me tug at the reins. I have become less and less resistant to its pull. When Mary, little Mary, sweet Mary, Mary with Flory's face, daily tends to my wound and changes the dressings, the siren's song is at its loudest. So loud, in fact, I wonder that the girl cannot hear its chant. This morning, as she bends over the red raw wound, tenderly ministering, I lean forward in my seat, barely aware of what I do, barely caring, breathing deeply of her scent as a wolf sniffs the air. Closer, closer, until at last she realizes what's happening. She catches my stare, and in that moment, those precious seconds, she is mine for the taking, and anticipation howls through me. Mary, you have duties elsewhere. Mrs. James speaks sharply, having entered the room silent as a shadow. She watches the fresh young thing bob a curtsy and then takes over my treatment. You're not sleeping at all well, are you, Master Archie? There is no compassion in her tone. I sleep, but I dream. Yes, you've the look of a mare-ridden man, she says, failing to cover her satisfaction, and I wonder for a panicked moment what she knows. Can she have somehow divined that mine were the hands around her other daughter's throat? That I was the one to see Florence with her eyes staring wide and fearful and, yes, disbelieving. That I left Flory propped up in one corner of the graveyard against a yew tree, her bodice ripped open and her heart torn out with the knife father had once given me. Could she know that Flory, whom I'd adored forever it seemed, had laughed in astonishment when I told her I'd given up everything for her, that I didn't care if she were my half-sister or not, that I wanted only her, Flory, who gently said we were dear friends, but she loved Jem Hayworth and none other, Flory, whose heart was never found. Then I recognize this madness for what it is. Paranoia. Sleep-deprived fancy. Mrs. James cannot know what form my dreams take. She cannot know the torments I experience in repose, the laughter and jeers from the mouths of women I cannot see, cannot find, cannot catch. No. Her dislike of me. Her combative turns are nothing more than natural antipathy. Though she's never liked me, not even when I was a child, there is no reason for her to know. Father had seen to that, letting blame fall on Flory's intended, while ensuring I escaped the consequences of my actions. He'd intuited what I'd done to his bastard daughter, to my own half-sister. 
without realizing the full extent of my activities. He thought there was only one. Do not do it again, father had said, and do not come home. We're sending you to university. All your financial needs shall be met. You will want for nothing, but do not return to Norwood, not while we live. But I have done it again. And again, and again, and again, for girls are easily cut from the herd. Tempted with sweets and flowers, cheap hair combs and lace handkerchiefs, with promises as insubstantial as candy floss and wishes. Oh, I have done it so many times, seeking ever and anon to recapture the experience, the sensation that came with Flory and Flory alone. All those lasses before, and all those after, never gave the same thrill, never even approached it. And when I buried Flory's dear heart, encoffined in a condensed milk canakin because she was so sweet, at the foot of the ancient oak, Matilda's wood, I at least realized she'd never been safe with me. That was all I'd ever wanted to do to her, just as I'd done it to others, although none had ever provided the ecstasy of Flory. Flory, whose heart was not alone. I've sown such votives around the world, sometimes a single flower, sometimes two or more, the container depending entirely on the level of gratification I'd derived from the experience. In San Francisco, for example, a rusty biscuit box held the tickers of seven ladies of the night. In Boston, that of a steel magnate's daughter found its final resting place in a carved casket of ebony inlaid with mother-of-pearl. In Paris, the cardiac pumps of fourteen gypsy streetwalkers had been packed easily into a series of tobacco tins and I still wondered what their small size said about their bearers. In Shanghai, I'd crammed forty-seven into a middling-sized drum, weighed it down with a brick, and dropped it into the harbor at midnight. There you are, Mr. Archie. That will see you through, says Mrs. James, drawing me out of my reverie. She finishes tying off the bandages and gives a smile fit to make winter shiver. As I stare into her pale blue eyes, I wonder if Mary, little Mary, sweet Mary, will provide me with the same rapture Flory did. It takes three days before I can find the girl alone. Three days of watching and waiting, stalking in stealth. Three days before I spy her, wandering across the fields with a basket over her arm to forage for the mushrooms I told Mrs. James I wanted for breakfast. I sneak out of the house, having made sure that the housekeeper is occupied elsewhere. I'm breathless by the time I catch her up just on the fringe of the wood, beneath the boughs, straying from the path. She doesn't hear me, and I tiptoe along behind her, observing as she thinks herself alone, drinking in the joy on her face when she finds a cluster of fat fungi, as she plucks and places them tenderly into the wicker container. When I can bear it no more, I say, Mary? She does not jump nor startle. She seems unsurprised to see me there, offers a tremulous smile. She's fearful, but biteable, as I reach for her. She takes my fingers with only a little hesitation, and nods as much with resignation as agreement. Compliance is all I require, so I may get the upper hand. I lead my lamb, my bride, further into the forest. She neatly, precisely places her basket on the grass, then lifts her face, closes her eyes, and puckers her lips as if this is a learned trick. I almost laugh, but draw close instead and press my mouth to hers. 
At first I caress her throat, then tighten, tighten, tighten my grip until she realizes her danger and begins too late to struggle. In those moments she is Flory again, to the very life, to the very death. She manages to gouge a thumb into my injured hand and the pain is blinding white. My fist makes her nose bleed, her eyes roll and hold hard until she gives that final shake and shudder and her spirit breaks away, drifting from body to air. I let her fall, then sit back to catch my breath and pull the hunting knife from my belt. The moment should have lasted longer. I feel bereft. Robbed. Cheated. The blade slices easily through her bodice until creamy skin, the delicate peaches of her budding breasts, the soft rounded belly are exposed. Lightly I run the scalpel sharp edge along her chest, watching as the meat briefly indents before recovering, until I increase the pressure just below the rib cage and the flesh surrenders a ruby welling. But then Mary, little Mary, sweet Mary, is gone. She disintegrates, bursts into a swirling universe of dust and ash, and there is nothing left of her, not even her clothes, not even the basket. Yet in that tiny moment, that widened second between explosion and disappearance, I see quite clearly her face replaced by Flory's, smiling cruelly up at me. I break stride at St. Bride's, but not for safety or sanctuary, nor for the comfort of confession or to beg redemption. I do not enter the church at all, but pause only in the graveyard to help myself to a shovel carelessly left behind by the sexton, then race into the wood where I'd once thought to stride in quiet triumph. The thick canopy of leaves above throws darkness down upon me, and every shadow shifts, every shape is alive. I stumble and fall more times than I can count, moving as if pursued, as if pulled along, and in truth I am both these things. I must see, I must know, if she rests still or roams, if I am merely maddened by nightmares and opiates, or if indeed she haunts me. The answer lies at the foot of the tree where I'd sown all my dearest hearts. My first and finest, my prentice works. I must dig and dig and dig until I reach them and see for myself that they remain, that all of my past deeds have not been undone, or not simply some wonderful, dreadful fever wish. I collide with the trunk of the god oak. Skin is torn from my face. My lower lip splits and a tooth loosens. I pick myself up, heedless of these things, and stab at the ground with the shovel. I dig. I dig and dig and dig. I dig for what seems too long. Have my treasures sunk? Somehow plummeted? That's to be expected when the earth moves. Shifts. Settles. But what if? What if they never were? What if they were never? My joy is unbounded when I'd reached them at last. That precious accumulation of snuff boxes, candy containers, food cans, little purses, hessian sacks, even some few delicate glass jars. Atop this tiny mountain is the tin where I'd placed my last flower, the label peeling away long ago, but I'd know it anywhere. I lean down and survey them all, watch the minuscule scraps of fabric and paper, grass and seeds, roots and clumps of dirt, all begin to fall in small avalanches, the sound of a trickle that seems like thunder.
Then I realized the cascades of debris as the result of many feet coming through the trees, heedless of noise. I look up and see that my seedlings have indeed been planted deeper than I recalled. Far deeper than I'd put them. The mouth of the hole I've dug is more than six feet away. Six feet up to salvation. One moment there is only trees. The next, faces appear. I recognize every one. How could I not? Twelve of them, pretty maids, all in a row, including Flory, each with a reddish-brown stain on her burial shroud, where blood had seeped through despite the undertaker's efforts, all where the hearts were taken. Flory does not rest. None of them do. Do you know? Comes a voice I know and loathe that she came back to me. I never thought Jem Hayworth did that terrible thing to my lovely girl, but your father swore. She returned, though, my beautiful Flory, and the others followed, all begging for help. All lonely, all crying out so I could barely sleep at the thought of the injustice done. I invited them into the house, made them welcome. She peeks over the edge. By her side stands little Mary, sweet Mary. Mrs. James laughs, and it's a thing to freeze the breath, to stop the blood. Your parents were mad by the end. Old houses always have ghosts, but not like these. Mrs. James, I whimper and reach hopelessly up. And this one, I marry, my last, my dearest, my daughter of smoke and sadness, of vengeance and rage. She looks at me, a gaze like a dagger. My lamb, my lure, my darling stalking goat. Mrs. James and all those pretty maids smile, and for a moment, a stupid fool's second, I think it's for me, with fond remembrance. Then I recall their terror, and their pleadings, that not a thing they'd said could have stayed my hand. And they begin to giggle. Echoes of the laughter that's haunted my hours, both sleeping and waking. And dirt pours over the sides of the pit as they use their tiny feet to kick it into the grave I've unwittingly dug for myself. Then the ground itself, this earth is mine, as are all in it, assists. The soil walls moving, moving, moving together, until all I can smell is damp earth. All I can taste is decay. All I can see is blackness. And all I can hear, Dolly, is Mrs. James croning. Goodbye, Master Archie. Sleep well. That was Angela Slatter's The Heart is a Mirror for Sinners, as read by her own Drew Sebastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spins stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director. But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Drew. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.